Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. We are in part three of a threefold podcast on the issue of volunteers in ministry. I started out with describing some reasons that leaders are reluctant to use or engage volunteers, and then we laid out a biblical and theological foundation for volunteers in ministry. Then last week, we talked about the importance of recruiting volunteers and went through some process of how to do that more effectively, and then actually uh, got way down in the weeds and talked about uh, what to actually do in a recruiting encounter or a recruiting visit with someone that you're uh, helping to come into a volunteer responsibility or that you're asking to take on a volunteer responsibility. Now today, we want to wrap up this uh, series with talking about motivating volunteers in ministry leadership. If uh, I think about some of the volunteers I've worked with, I've been astounded at what they've been able to accomplish and at really how motivated they were to do the work assigned. Let me give you some examples. One of my favorite volunteers is a man named George. When I was the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention, we had a large facility and a large parking lot uh, adjacent to, uh, to that, and so we installed some RV hookups on that parking lot. We installed uh, water, sewer, electrical, and even uh, TV cable to, that, to those places. And we did that so that we could recruit people to come and actually live on our site in their RVs, particularly people who would provide custodial and building support services to the convention. And George was one of the men who did that. He stayed for years. He, he moved his uh, trailer to our campus, hooked it up permanently, and worked for us about 20 hours a week in uh, serving us in our facility. He did basic custodial and janitorial, but he also did set up for meetings and uh, because he had a very flexible schedule as a, a retired man uh, living on our site, he was able to to uh, structure his weekly schedule to support the events that we had in the building, which was a really uh, an asset for us because if you have to pay someone to be on call like that, it can be really expensive. So George was <clears throat> just one of those volunteers who came and did that for us. His son, uh, George Jr., actually came after a while and uh, moved in and, and set up and did the same thing for us. And so uh, these two men served the convention for years, uh, one in retirement and one in sort of an early um, you know, dis disability or sort of a quasi-work you know, work relationship uh, to, uh, to uh, the convention. But uh, as a younger man, he was able to serve us in significant ways in a volunteer capacity as well. What motivated these men to do that? That's a great question. Here's another story. Um, as I told you, in the Northwest, we had this extensive volunteer ministry. We had about a dozen volunteers working at the convention facility. And then we were facilitating uh, volunteer teams in the churches and helping churches to develop their own volunteers' ministries and how to go about that more effectively. And so in order to do that, I had a couple, Don and Theta, who were the volunteer coordinators for the Northwest Baptist Convention. In other words, they worked in our convention offices as volunteers, and they facilitated all this work that I'm describing. Now, Don was a retired colonel with significant administrative gifts and quite a bit of leadership skill. I uh, was able to recruit him to come to work for us as a volunteer. When I say work for us as a volunteer, he received no compensation for the years he served with the convention. Now, in his case, we did pay his travel expenses because he was out representing us and going all over the place doing this work. 
But he and his wife worked full-time. In fact, they worked more than full-time. He had an office in our facility. He was a member of one of our teams. He uh, and his wife were there almost every day, and when they weren't there, they were usually out traveling, et cetera, doing the work that they had been assigned. What motivated them to invest full-time, both of them, in the work of the Northwest Baptist Convention for years? That's another great question. And then there's another volunteer, my friend Cecil. Uh, Cecil was the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention just prior to my taking on that responsibility. He retired uh, in a very beautiful way. He was an honorable man, made a fantastic contribution. Cecil had one particular area that he was really passionate about, and that was stewardship development. And so when I came on as the state executive, I said, Cecil, I wonder if you would be willing to work for the Northwest Baptist Convention in a volunteer capacity. I'd like to ask you to be our stewardship development director, and I'd like to make you available to the churches uh, to do stewardship development, and particularly to pastors to coach them in how to do stewardship development in their churches. And Cecil readily agreed to do that, and in my uh, 10 years as the state executive in the Northwest, he served in that volunteer capacity for 10 years. He traveled the Northwest, taught stewardship development seminars, coached pastors on stewardship development practices, and was a voice for developing stewards uh, across the Northwest. What would motivate a man to spend uh, the first 10 years of his retirement devoting himself to that kind of ministry assignment? That's also another good question. All three of these, George doing uh, maintenance and custodial and building support services, Uh, Don and Theta directing a program uh, that spanned two states and hundreds of churches. Uh, Cecil uh, traveling, speaking, teaching, preaching, fulfilling a responsibility that he felt he had in the area of stewardship development. What motivated all of these to do the work they did for the years they were involved as volunteers? Well, I want to talk about that today, and I want to talk about what it means to motivate volunteers in ministry. Now, Let me undercut my entire presentation with this next statement. You can't motivate anyone. People motivate themselves. But you can create a climate in which people are motivated. You can create opportunities which people will engage because they are motivated. So I want to talk with you now as a ministry leader, not about how you motivate others, which can pretty quickly get into manipulation, but instead how as a ministry leader you create a climate for motivation in which people will make the choice to do remarkable things in volunteer service uh, for your church or ministry organization. The first step for you in creating a climate for motivation is to create and to, or is to build the spirit or the tone or the attitude of your organization. You want an organization that's marked by joy, enthusiasm, optimism, uh, loyalty, friendliness. You want an organization that's marked by these qualities. And you build that tone by a couple of primary uh, steps. Number one, by how you conduct yourself personally. If you are an upbeat, positive person who comes to work every day uh, with uh, an intent to get something done and to celebrate the accomplishments of your organization as you go forward together, people are going to pick up on that example. And secondarily, if you'll use the public gatherings of your organization to create that spirit or tone, you will contribute to this climate of motivation. 
you know, here at the seminary, we've got all kinds of problems, every kind of thing you can imagine. We are always solving problems. Every week I go to a meeting, and the only thing we talk about in that meeting are problems we've got to solve. I mean, we've got enrollment problems. We've got faculty problems. We've got personnel problems. We've got building problems. We've got financial problems. We've got problems, problems, problems. Let me guess. Your ministry is just like that. But when we have public gatherings at the seminary, chapel, trustees' banquets, donor events, when we have public events of the seminary, we do not talk about our problems. We don't lament how bad things are. We don't talk about the struggles we're having. We don't talk about uh, issues we're facing or challenges that we've got to overcome. In those public gatherings, we talk about the mission that we're committing our lives to fulfilling. We talk about the progress we're making toward getting that mission accomplished. We talk about the challenges we're overcoming to get there. And occasionally we do mention problems because we have to talk about what we're going to overcome, but we don't fixate or focus on those things. So the first step in building a climate in which people will be motivated to do volunteer ministry is to build the tone or the spirit or the attitude of your organization. And you do that by two things. Number one, you do that by your personal example. And number two, you do that by controlling what happens in the big public events that your ministry has. And for a church, that's primarily the worship services. It's so vital that you structure those to create or to communicate not just the information that you want to communicate, but the tone, the attitude, uh, the, uh, the, the, the spirit, if you will, of the church or the, uh, uh, in the worship service. That's how you do it, number one. A second way that you create a climate for motivation is to create a climate of stability. Uh, people are more highly motivated when there's order and predictability and structure and stability in their work environment. Now, stability does not mean stagnation. It doesn't mean the absence of change. It doesn't mean the absence of energy. It doesn't mean things aren't being, going to be done differently than they've been done in the past. But stability means that there's an orderliness, that there's a sense of purpose in the transitions or the changes. There's a sense that we're going somewhere, but we're going there together. I was recently in a meeting in our church where the pastor was talking about some pretty significant changes, and he made this statement. He said, we're taking everyone with us. If you're on a walker, you come on, we'll wait for you. And everybody just kind of laughed because what he was saying was, if you're struggling, if you're limping along a little bit, if you're, if you're going slow, that's okay. As long as you're coming with us, we're going to wait for you because we want everybody to go through this together. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of creating uh, progress and change and announcing that we're really going somewhere, but also saying, but we're going to go there in an orderly fashion. We're going to go there with some stability. We're going to go there with our arms around each other. We're going to make it together. So a climate of motivation uh, is, first of all, created by your personal example and the way you conduct yourself uh, in big meetings that represent your organization, and then secondarily, by creating a climate of stability or a culture of stability or an organization of stability. Not meaning that you're not making changes, but that people have a sense that they're safe in your organization and they're not threatened by being a part of it. A third step in creating this climate of motivation is creating what I call a team atmosphere. Now, how do you create a team atmosphere? Well, you do that by uh, being willing to share both responsibility and authority with people so that they really do feel empowered to work in your organization. Uh, they, a team environment is built when there's a free interaction among people uh, that they can actually say what they think without fear of reprisal. And while they have to do that in a respectful and honorable way, they can speak the truth even to people in power. 
team environment is created by uh, people feeling like that they can serve, that they're serving uh, where they feel where they're where they're a, a good fit and where they make a good contribution, and that if they need to make a change, they they could voice that and actually be facilitated in making that change. Um, they they feel a team environment is where people feel like they have a voice in creating the agenda of the organization and how the organization is going to accomplish its mission. Uh, they have a voice in shaping what gets done and and how it gets done. And so uh, a demotivator is people feeling like they're coming to work or they're volunteering to fulfill someone else's agenda or someone else's dream. But a motivator is when they say, hey, I'm on the team. Uh, I've got a voice. People listen to me. Uh, I know my role, and if I don't like it, I can speak up, and maybe my role can be changed because I want to make a con contribution here. I want to do something that helps. I want to be a part of this. That's what it means to create a team environment. It means that people feel a responsibility, but also appropriate authority to make decisions, get things done, uh, uh, see something to conclusion. That's a team environment. Now, fourth, a fourth way to create a climate of motivation is maintaining affirmation as a high priority. Now, let's talk about what this means because in an employment context, we normally think of affirmation as being the paycheck a person receives. And that certainly is a, a method or a means of affirmation. But that's not available to you as a person who motivates or leads volunteers. So you have to create instead a climate of affirmation that's based on other things. Uh, affirmation involves acceptance and trust. It also involves giving people legitimate rewards and giving them uh, legitimate uh, appreciation or even accolade for their contribution. It means that you notice volunteers and give them support and acknowledgement for what they've accomplished. Uh, it means uh, recognizing their achievements and letting it be known that the organization depends on them for its functionality. You know, this... Um, this can be something as simple as a, a recognition that's powerful and yet seems simple. Uh, in the Northwest Baptist Convention, for example, uh, all of our volunteers were assigned to be on a team. And, for example, we had the missions team, we had the church health team, we had the, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, church planting team. You, you get the idea. And so when a volunteer joined our staff, like, for example, Cecil was responsible for church stewardship development, he was on the church health team. So on convention meetings, when I would recognize the teams, I would say, now I'd like for you to recognize uh, our church health team. This is the team leader, and I'd call that person forward. And then I would say, here are the other members of the team. And I would call out their names and have them stand there together. And I called out the volunteers, just like I called out the paid employees, and I didn't distinguish between the two. I just said, here is the team that serves us in the area of church health. And so these volunteers are standing up in front of the convention with their team, knowing they're part part of the movement, they're part of the organization, they're an integral part of what we're doing, and because of that, they felt affirmed in the role that they had. So this is a simple thing, but just even letting people know that you recognize you know, they're, they're, they're part of the team is a good way to give affirmation. Now, um, you can also give affirmation by giving um, plaques and pins and certificates. You can also give affirmation by giving small gifts or small uh, tokens of appreciation. For example, um, in the Northwest Baptist Convention, again, when we gave out Christmas bonuses, uh, we would frequently give the 
a, a, a cash Christmas bonus to the volunteers. Now, you may say, well, I thought they were volunteers. Well, they were, and they've just given us 40 hours a week for the last 30 or 45 weeks, uh, so why not give them a little small gift at, at the end of the year to say, we notice you and we appreciate you and we value your contribution just like we do the paid employees. Now, you can't do that in every church with every volunteer. I get that, but that's just another example of what we did to try to create this climate of motivation where people felt like they were you know, really part of the team, and so because of that, the affirmation they felt from that gave them a deeper motivation to keep the work going. I've done other things too, certificates, plaques, small gifts, other kinds of things to just uh, let people know that they're appreciated. But perhaps nothing is more important than verbal praise in a public setting that's legitimate and genuine. Not manipulative, not a flattery, but legitimate and genuine, where you stand up in front of others and say, this is so-and-so who's made a significant contribution to our work. They serve on our team in a volunteer capacity, and I want you to thank them today for what they've done to make this meeting successful or what they've done to make this event successful or what they've done to make our church successful. And in doing that, there's this, this sense uh, that comes from the, uh, into them of I belong, I'm a part, and I want to do even more in the future. Now, I want to say one negative thing about this because... This idea of creating a, uh, or using affirmation to, to uh, increase motivation. Uh, some Christian leaders resort to the negative aspects of this, and they do it far too much. Uh, they, they use negative motivation, or what they think is motivation, by trying to heap on guilt and shame, by, uh, by creating fear or by threatening punishment, by making negative comparisons. Um, these kinds of things do not motivate people. They don't motivate your spouse. They don't motivate your children. They don't motivate your fellow church employees, and they definitely don't motivate your volunteers. And so if you think by browbeating people, by preaching down to them, by reminding them of what they haven't done, by telling them how much of a failure they are, by continually speaking to them about the negativity of what they're not accomplishing, that somehow you're going to motivate them to rise up, newsflash, that won't work. And so I'm not advocating flattery. I'm ad advocating honest, legitimate recognition that says uh, the good things people are accomplishing, and in doing that, you create a greater climate for them to motivate themselves in work that you're doing together. Another uh, fifth step of creating a climate of motivation is continually keeping the mission of your organization in front of everyone and challenging everyone, paid and volunteer, to live up to and fulfill the mission. You can do this by, of course, preaching and teaching, but you can also do it in other ways in which you recognize people for their contribution to the mission. Let me tell you one way I did this as a pastor, and I did this for years. Um, our church had, a, of course, like uh, most growing churches, a, a consistent effort at evangelism. We were uh, evangelizing people in the community, we were winning them to faith in Christ, and we were baptizing them. Now, here's what we would do at every baptism. When I would bring the candidate down into the water, I would say, uh, this is Tom, who's recently committed his life to Jesus Christ. And he, along with his wife, his wife Sally, have been visiting our church in, uh, for these past months and investigating the gospel. And now he's come to faith in Jesus and comes to declare that faith to you this morning in baptism. But before we have his baptism, I'd like to recognize those of you who've been part of his conversion story. If you're here today and you ever shared the gospel with Tom by telling him about Jesus, would you please stand? If you're here today and you ever taught Tom and Sally in a Sunday school class, helping them to understand the Bible and the context of the gospel, would you please stand? If you're here today and you prayed for this couple, or you ever went to a visit in their home to talk with them about Jesus, would you please stand? 
if you this couple has two small preschool children if you've ever cared for either one of their children while they were in the preschool so their parents could come to worship service or Bible study, if you've cared for their children in preschool, would you please stand? By now, I've got anywhere from five to 25 people standing. And I would say, the church this morning salutes all of you for having a hand and a part in this couple coming to faith in Jesus and Tom coming to stand here in this baptistry in this moment. Thank you. Please be seated. And then I would turn to Tom and say, Tom, all of these people care about you and they've helped you come to faith in Jesus. And so I ask you today, have you committed your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? And then, of course, we go on with the baptism. Now you say, wow, uh, that didn't take long and that didn't cost anything. And, 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 and no, it didn't. But what did I do? I said, the mission of our church is reaching people. And if you've made any contribution to the mission, I want you to be recognized. So if you've prayed, if you've visited, if you've taught, if you have cared for their children so they could go to class or worship service, would you please stand? When people do this, it gives them a sense that I'm on the team. I had a hand in this. I'm a part. I contributed. That's what I mean by keeping the mission before people and showing them and or, or challenging them to fulfilling it and then showing them how they've had a part in getting it done. I remember one time I went to visit a mega church and when I drove on the parking lot, um, there, was, there were hundreds of cars coming into that parking lot, but I drove on the parking lot and a parking lot uh, person fly, was flagging people down to show them where to park and they were helping people because obviously this church is you know, having to manage people even on the parking lot. I came on the parking lot, though, and, and they're waving people by when suddenly the flagman puts up his hand and stops me and directs me to go another direction. I thought, well, wh why can't I go with the rest of everyone else? <laughs> but no, he was insistent. I had to turn left and go a different direction. So I, I followed his direction. I turned left, and I saw another person with a big smile waving me forward, and he waved me down, and then he got, when I got to him, he pointed to his left and signaled me to turn again. So I turned, and I turned at that left, and this time, to my surprise, I drove down a short driveway to the main parking lot right in front of the main sanctuary, and I parked against the curb in front of the main sanctuary. And as soon as my car stopped, a gentleman stepped off the curb, opened my car door, and said to me, Good morning. Welcome to our church. How may I serve you? I looked at him. I turned to my wife, and I said, I would join this church right now based on this parking lot usher. <laughs> this is impressive. Well, after the service, I, I had never had anything happen to me like this, so I had to find out how they did it. So I walked out of the parking lot and found one of those guys. And I said, hey, when I came onto the parking lot, you pulled me out of the line, sent me over here, sent me down here, parked me right here. And a guy came out, greeted us, helped us out of our car and walked us in, showed us where the preschool was, got our children involved. How did you do that? He smiled and said, oh, he said, out here on the parking lot team, we, we just want to be a part of helping people to get inside and hear the gospel and and uh, so what we do is, if you're a member of our church, we put a little tiny red sticker about the size of a nickel on your front bumper. And uh, if you're not a member, that means you don't have a red sticker. And if you don't have a red sticker, we assume you're a guest, and so we pull you out of the line, and we send you down there to the guest parking. He says, it's just our little way of helping the people who need to hear the gospel, or who may need to hear the gospel, to get inside the building quicker and, and uh, maybe have a little better experience here that maybe opens them up to what the pastor has to say. Well, I'm telling this story, I've got tears in my eyes. I stood there with tears in my eyes on that parking lot, and I thought, this man will never preach a gospel message. He'll never stand up on that stage inside that auditorium. He'll never be on television. He'll never preach to millions. But this guy has it in his heart that his church is about getting people to hear the gospel, and he's going to do everything he can to make sure he gets that done. And I thought, 
I hope somebody recognizes this. And I hope somebody uh, lifts up these parking lot guys every now and then and gives them just a little bit of notice because they are a vital part of the team. Now, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about creating a climate for motivation, where you lift up the mission of your church and you challenge people to find a way to fulfill it and you put them in volunteer responsibilities. And then from time to time, you just call out and recognize how they have been significant in getting the job done. And in doing so, you elevate that climate of motivation in your church. Well, finally, the last issue for motivating uh, volunteers is providing them adequate supervision uh, for the task. Uh, supervision and training for the task. Now you say, well, how does that motivate people? Well, this surprises people. I've already said it on the, on the podcast, but when I teach this, it really surprises people. Well, I learned a long time ago, if you really want a volunteer to do a good job, they got to have a job description, they got to have training, and they got to be held accountable to that job description and that training. And this is hard to hear, but sometimes you have to go to volunteers and say, you know what, we, we just can't use you anymore in this role. Let's find something else for you to do that'll be more suitable. That's hard to do. I remember one time I had a volunteer worship leader in our church, and I had to go to them and say, uh, look, the supervision and training that we've given you is, is, is not working to help you to fulfill the responsibilities you have. Uh, there's something not clicking in the motivation you have to do this job the way we need it done, and I'm going to have to ask you to step aside, and we're going to bring someone else in. I want to tell you that's one of the hardest ministry conversations I ever had as a pastor. It's tough. But... After I had that conversation and after we made that change, multiple people on the worship team, musicians, singers, tech workers, came up to me privately and said, Pastor, I don't know how to say this, but thank you. We, we needed new leadership. And we're glad someone stepped in and held that person that was in this role to some accountability, even though they were volunteer and they were, they, they were good people and they... And we don't want to leave our church. They, they, the, the, it just wasn't working. And thank you for supervising and training and holding accountable the person you put in place because by doing that, you've encouraged all the rest of us to stay with it. I didn't realize when I had that hard conversation that I was on the verge of losing about a dozen volunteers that were working under this person's leadership. But by making the change... I raised the level of motivation of everyone because they felt like that I had an investment in their, or they could invest in their ministry without feeling like that it was really for naught. So you can't motivate other people. I've already said that and I recognize that, but you can create a climate of motivation by putting into practice these six best practices I've given you. And by doing so, change the way that volunteers feel and sense and are motivated in your ministry context. Well, I hope these three podcasts have been helpful. Uh, it's essential that we find a way to overcome our reticence to reach out to and involve more volunteers in ministry. I know that's hard and difficult, but we have to get it done because the biblical and theological uh, material on this is pretty clear. God has always and does always want to use volunteers to advance his kingdom. Now, we can do that better by recruiting more effectively and by creating a climate of motivation in which people really want to serve and get the job done. It's been an interesting uh, time of ministry for me in being at the seminary when I'm making a limited use of volunteers, but less than ever. But I still even use them here at the seminary as we engage people and use them to help us accomplish the work that God has given us. So whether you're a church or a convention or an association or an NGO or a, or a, or a Christian ministry in a community or even a seminary, find a way 
to use volunteers. It'll change your organization for the better, and it'll make you more effective as you lead on.